Okay, everybody, let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and today we are going to start our uh, series on each fruit of the Spirit that is listed in Galatians 5, especially in verse 22. But to set the context this morning, let's go to Galatians 5 and let's start reading in verse number 16. The Apostle Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no limitation or there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord for his people, the sheep of his pasture. I pray that he'll bless the reading and the application of his word. Like I said, today we're going to start just taking one fruit of the Spirit each Sunday. And so we're going to start with love, but what I'd like to do is, is i like to just um, take a little bit more time to talk about love in the next couple of weeks. Why is that? For several reasons. Number one, love is the queen of all virtues. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, but the greatest of these is love. And what Paul was talking about was, was love is greater than faith. Love is a greater virtue than hope. And that's kind of hard for us to get our minds uh, wrapped around. That's what Paul said. Love is greater than faith. Love is greater than hope. It is the greatest of these. Not only that, but one, another reason why I just want to stay in love for a little bit is because love accentuates the others, the fruits. Love accentuates joy. It accentuates um, and magnifies and beautifies. Uh, I'll just make up a word, beautify. It beautifies self-control and gentleness and so forth and so on. But another reason why I just want to just stay in love for a while is that our culture gets love so wrong. Um, it's a tragedy that our culture gets love so wrong. Not only is it a tragedy that our culture gets it wrong, I think, I think a greater tragedy is the church gets it wrong. And the reason why we get love wrong is because of definition. Definition. Uh, most of us are working off of a different definition than a biblical definition of love. And the definition that we work off of is usually a definition that we have created ourselves. How we want to be loved. How we want to love, when forgive, and when we want other people to forgive—that's conditional. I don't even think you can call that love. But the problem with love is our definition. It's not a God definition of love. A lot of times, especially in the secular world, um, it's our definition of love. It's based in our selfishness, in our our uh, self-worship, and it's hard to harmonize our relationships whenever we are working off different definitions of love. And this is manifested in marriage, and it's manifested in all types of relationships. 
Uh, two weeks ago, I finished reading a book about a couple who is relatively well-known, even in our culture. They're a Christian culture, uh, the Christian couple. And early in their marriage, they had a very, very difficult time. And that's what made the book so interesting, was what they had to work through to get to the point uh, to where they are now, which is a godly marriage. And what was wrong was, is both the husband and the wife were working on different definitions of marriage. Uh, the wife's definition of marriage was, uh, was affected by sexual abuse early in her life. The husband's uh, definition of marriage was affected by alcoholism that was just rampant in his family and also just his, his arrogance. And so whenever they were working off of these different definitions of love, they began to clash and they began to become unfaithful. But whenever they started um, looking at God's definition of love, and applying God's definition of love to their marriage, restoration began. Harmonization began. Forgiveness began to, uh, to be rendered one to another. And we do the same thing not only in marriage, we do the same thing in our families. Um, that is why I think it's so important uh, to keep your family in church. Uh, for just one reason, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but one reason is to, we can learn God's definition of love with each other. And not only that, but we do it in our friendships. We do it in all relationships where we try to work off of our own definitions. And when we do that, eventually there is going to be a clash. And that was one of the problems in the churches of Galatia. And so the one of the reasons why we have the Word of God, one of many reasons why we have the Word of God, is that God is teaching us the correct definition of love. God is wanting us to get on his definition of love, not, not our own, not our selfish, conditional definition of love, so that we can all be on the same page. And so this morning, what I'd like for us to do is start a definition of love that will continue next Sunday and the following Sunday. But this morning, I just want to begin with the word love, the biblical word for love in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there is basically one predominant word for love, and that is the word chesed. And if you have your sermon notes pulled up on your device or whatever, you know, you can see the spelling of that word, chesed. And what is so beautiful about the word chesed is its range of meaning. The word chesed or love in the Old Testament embraces a lot of just wonderful virtues um, that we really need to know about. Uh, for instance, in, in Exodus chapter 30, uh, 34 and verse 6, um, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. And there in that verse, the, the Lord passes before Moses. And he starts to communicate. He starts to reveal himself to Moses. And, and, and it's such a powerful moment. I mean, just think about going up to Mount Sinai, Moses receiving the law, and God passing before him is such a high, holy, and powerful moment. And you would think that the Lord would reveal Himself to Moses as holy, 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 like He did Isaiah um, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. And, and that's true. But on Mount Sinai, in this very powerful moment, this is how the Lord reveals Himself to Moses. He says to Moses, Yahweh, the Yahweh, or the Lord, a God merciful. He begins with mercy. He says, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so on Mount Sinai, 
in this very ominous, powerful moment, the Lord passes before Moses and He doesn't say, I am Yahweh God, I am holy, holy, holy. No, He says, I am merciful. I am gracious. My love is a steadfast love. It is a faithful love for thousands. Not only that, but it is a love that will forgive iniquity, that will forgive sin. That's a powerful thing to remember when we're thinking about the definition of love in the Old Testament. It's steadfast. It's kind. It's gracious. It's forgiving. Not only that, but in Isaiah chapter 54 in verse 5, um, in that text, the Old Testament describes God's love as a husband's love for his wife. You can read that in Isaiah 54 in verse 5. Then you drop down to Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 17, and I think this is really important, where God's love is the hinge, it's the motivation for God's people to turn back to Him to ask for forgiveness after they have broken the law. And that is a very, that is a very uh, pathos-laden text whenever you go to Nehemiah chapter 9 where the people turn to God in repentance because of His great love for them. In Psalms chapter 5 and verse 7, um, we see that God's love is the motivation for worship. And then you go on down a hundred and something chapters to Psalms chapter 136 and verse 1, and you have that great worship praise chorus where it says, His steadfast love endures how long? His steadfast love endures forever. And so overall, if you take the Hebrew word chesed or love, it means faithfulness, not fickleness. You see, human love or earthly love is fickle. It's based on something. It's based on some value uh, that can be brought to you, but that's not God's love. We have nothing to bring to God that is of a value. Nothing at all. Folks, He loves us, and His love is faithful. It's faithful love. Not only that, but God's love is not arrogant, but it's affectionate. Um, if you go back to uh, Exodus chapter 34, and it says He has an affectionate love that is an affectionate loyalty. That's what the word Yahweh means. That name, that holy name for God, that's what it means. Affectionate loyalty. God is loyal to us in many ways, but He is loyal to us in His affection. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you, if you are in Christ, God loves you. And He has an affectionate loyalty toward you. Not only that, but His love will not end. It will endure. Not only that, but God's love is not manipulative, uh, but is merciful. Aren't you glad? that God's love is not manipulative. God is not manipulating us. He's not saying, if you do this for me, then I will love you. He's not doing that. He's saying, I am going to love you. I am going to be kind and gracious and forgiving to you, even, even in our sin. It's an amazing thing. And so the biblical picture of love is, is, I guess if you want to paint a word picture in the Old Testament, it's a loving, kind, gracious, forgiving relationship between a parent and a child, between a husband and a wife, and hopefully next year, we're going to study the book of Hosea. Hosea is a very controversial book, but it even describes chesed is even that love that motivates a husband to go after an unfaithful bride. That's love. That's love. And not only does God love us like this, with kind affection, faithfulness, with mercy and graciousness, but in Micah 7.19, listen to what one little phrase in that verse. In Micah 7.19, listen to what it says. It says that God delights in His steadfast love. Not only does He love us with affection, not only does He love us with kindness and graciousness and forgive us, but God delights, His heart delights in His steadfast love 
toward us. So right now, if you're a child of God, God's love is affectionate, He's gracious, it's forgiving, it's kind, it's all these things. But you know what? God is delighting in His love for you. And so we move to the, um, the Greek Old Testament or the Greek New Testament. And the word for love in the Greek New Testament or the Septuagint in the Greek Hebrew uh, Scripture is the word agapeo or the word agape. Now, a lot of people say that agape is a divine love. Well, historically, uh, through the Greek culture, the word agape was a special type of love, but it was, it was used for a lot of relationships. And you can find this in C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. If you want to read that, that's fine. But in the Bible, the word agape or agapeo is used to describe God's love to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's also used to describe the love that we ought to have for one another. And look, listen, we like to throw that word agape around a lot. Well, I agape owe you, or I, I love you in an agape sense. But we really need to stop and we need to ask ourselves the question, do we really love each other with an agape love? Or do we love each other? Is our love predicated on our definition of love or a secular definition of love? But agape is used to describe God's love toward us and the love that we ought to have for each other. You find this in John 3.16. Um, and, and just listen to John 3.16 with fresh ears this morning. For God so loved, for God so, so agapeoed you, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I wouldn't give my son or my daughters for any of you all. But God gave His only perfect Son, second person of the Holy Trinity. He gave Him Son for us as a redeeming sacrifice. If we put our trust and our belief in Him, we will not perish, but we will have everlasting life. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, it says, but God demonstrated His agapeo toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we were, we, folks, we were sinners. We were tainted, stained, lost, um, degenerate sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. Um, and then you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where not only does it describe the love that we should have toward one another, that great, great chapter about love, but it also describes all those little descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13, describe God's love toward us in Jesus Christ. Now, just, just think just for a moment. This isn't in my sermon notes. This is, this is free. All right. This is, this is a sidebar. If you take the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 and you compare it with the Old Testament description of love, the love of God in the Old Testament, it's the same. It's the same thing. It may use different words, but it's the same thing. A lot of people think God loved people differently in the Old Testament and He loved people differently in the New Testament. That's not true. God's love is God's love. It never, ever changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's always faithful. It's always merciful. It's always gracious. It's always affectionate. It's always sacrificial. It's always steadfast. I like that word, steadfast love. It never moves. It digs in its heels and it doesn't move. It doesn't change. Why? It's because God doesn't change. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift, in the book of James, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation, there is no shadow, there is not one millimeter of change in God's character. And you know what that means? There is no change in God's love. There is no, no change. And the love that we have in Jesus Christ never changes, because what does the Bible say in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8? It says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and for the next couple of weeks until we disappoint Him? Forever. Alright? Forever. 
It's the same. And so God's love for us, that, 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 that sovereign love for His children never changes. But here is where I want to caution you. Our love, our definition of love, an earthly definition of love, if you want to call it that, can change. Did you know that you can choose not to love somebody? You say, oh, I, I, I can never choose not to love my spouse. Oh, yes, you can. Don't try to be so pious and spiritual. Oh, yes, you can. You can choose not to love someone. You can choose to love someone less. Now, before some of you all get an excuse to use that to divorce your spouse, I could just see some of y'all want to turn to your spouse and say, you know, I, I choose not to love you anymore, therefore I'm going to divorce. Let me just say this. You can choose to love them. You can choose to love them by God's definition of love. You can choose to do that. Not only that, but it is God's will that you love and forgive. And you say, but Aaron, you don't know my spouse. You're right. I don't know your spouse. I don't know where, you're, I don't know where you live. I don't know what your relationship is. But I know this. God's will is for you to love and forgive. And with, and with God, all things are possible. And if that doesn't motivate you, just think about James chapter 4 and verse 17. And he who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin. It is sin. But my point is this, God's love does not change. Even though our human love and our definitions of love changes and is fluid, a lot of times it's earthly definitions of love, those Hollywood definitions of love, those, even those secular music definitions. Hey, and you better be careful about embracing a Hollywood definition of love. Can I get an amen? All right. You better be careful about embracing a secular music definition of love. But God's love never changes. It never changes. Brothers and sisters, I've said this many times, I'll say it again. If you are in Christ, God cannot love you less. He cannot love you more. He has loved you perfectly through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's it. And some of you are trying to make God love you more. That was a problem in Galatians. But you can't. Because if you, are, if you are truly in Christ, He cannot love you more. He cannot love you less. And His love will not change. And in the New Testament, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore the three major passages of love. You have Matthew 22. We're going to study about this next week. Matthew chapter 22. When Jesus was asked by the, by the Pharisees, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And then you have uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we uh, quote that in marriages. I hope, hopefully we apply it to our marriages. And then we have 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4. 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4. And, and we usually, when we think of love, we usually go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or the Gospels. But I'm going to tell you something, man. Just like Miriam read a while ago, man, John chapter 4 and chapter 3, 1 John chapter 4 and 3, are just packed with good theology about love. And so what I want us to do is move from a definition of love and let's just think about the phrase, God is love. So let's go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. I'm going to read a lot to you. I'm going to reread what Miriam read to you, but I think it's good. We learn by repetition. All right, so 1 John chapter 4, and let's just start reading in verse number 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It became clear, it was illustrated, it was demonstrated. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you're glad about that, say, praise the Lord. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We we like to stop at verse number uh, 10, don't we? But he goes on and he says, listen, if we have the love of God, it should transform our relationships. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. Remember John chapter 15. God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in His love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us. That definition, that biblical definition, that godly definition of love is perfected in us through the Holy Spirit so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So stop right there. This is a tremendously deep teaching, theological teaching. Um, if you get time this week, ju- just go back, go to chapter 3 of 1 John, and <clears throat> just read through chapter 4, and just really think about what you're reading. And apply it to your life. I mean, folks, it's it's tremendous knowledge. But I just want to zero in on that one phrase, and that one phrase is God is love. This isn't emphatic in the Greek. This isn't emphatic. John doesn't put an exclamation point by you know after that statement. He doesn't underline it. He doesn't italicize it. He doesn't bold it. It's just a statement of fact. And that's the way John is approaching this. God is love. This is true. This is the way it is. Now, you would think a a phrase like that, God is love, would be simple and straightforward, and you wouldn't need to have any other explanation of what that means. But in our society and in the church today, we have to come to grips and understand what the phrase God is love, what it means. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you what it doesn't mean, and then I'm going to close by giving you what it means. You ready? The phrase, God is love, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that love is God. It does not mean that love is God. And this is where our culture drives off into a very deep ditch. Because our culture doesn't believe that God is love, but our culture reverses that, inverses that, and they believe that love is God. And so if you take that to its philosophical or theological end, every warm, fuzzy, I mean, every obsession, every lustful thought that we have could be divine. Now, you can figure out what the problem with that is. And and also in marriage, you know, even, even in marriage ceremonies, we say the greatest thing for marriage is love. No, that's not the greatest thing for marriage. The greatest thing for marriage is God. Because God is love. And we need to be working off His definition of love not some secular definition of love, 
Not some, you know, uh, made up debt. No, folks, God is love. And He is the most important part of all of our relationships. Not, not just marriage, but all of our relationship. And true love comes from God. True love comes from God. If the pagans, if the unbelievers, if they ever experience true love, it's only the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that they experience it. And so God is love does not mean that love is God. God is love also does not mean that God is only love. That He, is not, that he has no other characteristics other than love. And so if, the, if God had only one characteristic and that characteristic was love, there is no justice. There is no justice. There is no wisdom. There is no holiness. There is no righteousness. And not only that, but if God only has one characteristic and that characteristic is love, there is no sovereignty. There is no controlling providence over this world. And I can explain that later. But, but, but God becomes indulgent. He becomes passive. And He becomes able to be manipulated. And boy, that, boy, that reminds me of my parenting sometimes. It's because I quit parenting based on the definition of God's love and I parent on, based on my definition, wanting just to, to pacify my children, keep them happy above all things, and I become a very sad, indulgent, manipulated father. And that's what's wrong with our understanding of God as love. Alright, so what does it mean? Well, put on your snorkels, turn on your oxygen, we're going to go a little bit deep. And I'm going to give you seven things that what God is love means. It's a little bit theological, uh, but I think we can all use it, we all need it. And so let's go, and then I'm going to end uh, with a message about next week. Number one, what does what God's love, God is love, what does it mean? It means this, love is God's nature. Love is God's nature. It is His, His very being. The love of God is not, is not only His relationship with us. It's not only that. It is who He is. God is 100% holy. He's 100% love. He's 100% just. He's 100% love. He's 100% wise. He's 100% love. He's 100% merciful. He's 100% love. It is God's nature. It doesn't mean that He has no other characteristics, but God is love. That is His nature. That is His being. Number two, love, the love of God, permeates the rest of His characteristics, and it harmonizes with them. His holiness is loving holiness. His wrath, even His wrath, we got to take that, right? Is loving wrath. Um, his righteousness is loving righteousness. Remember on Mount Sinai. Let's hike back up to Mount Sinai just for a minute. And let's just kind of stand there with Moses. And let's just kind of see God passing by us. And man, you see the power, the omnipotence, the holiness, the purity of God. But yet, what does God say about Himself? I am kind, I am merciful, I'm compassionate, and my love is steadfast. Isn't that awesome? Number three, God's love is pure. God's love is pure. 1 John 5.1 says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. If there is no darkness, then there is no darkness in His love. His love is absolutely pure. And so the love that God delights in toward us is pure love. Now, you know, I would really like to be really pious and spiritual and sit here and tell you all that my love for my wife is absolutely pure and that her love for me, well, I'm not going to bring Jill into this, but my love for her is absolutely pure, but it's not. 
But if I get on God's definition, and I love her as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5, then my love is pure. Number four, God's love does not arise from something outside of Him. God does not need an object uh, to love or to be loved. No, He is love. Number five, God's love is as infinite as His being. It's an infinite love. Number six, the ultimate... Now, this may be hard for some of y'all to get your mind wrapped around, but the, because I know y'all think y'all are God's special creation. But, but man, God's ultimate object of His love is His own glory. The object of God's love, His ultimate object, is His own glory. The book of Ezekiel says that. Isaiah chapter 43 says that we are created for His glory. We are loved for His glory. And praise God, we are redeemed for His glory. Did you get me? We are created for His glory. We are loved for His glory. And we are redeemed for His glory. And number seven, and I end with this, is I want you to think, Let's think through this. The work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection reveals God's love to us. The love of God, now think deeply with me on that. The love of God cannot be reduced only to His saving work through Jesus Christ. But the saving work of Jesus Christ reveals God's love to us. God's love cannot be reduced to only His saving work um, through the cross and through the resurrection. But the cross and the resurrection prove and display and reveal God's love to us. Let me ask you a question this morning before I end with two points. Do you know that God loves you? I think one reason why, uh, there are a lot of reasons why we struggle as Christians. But I think one reason why we struggle is we don't realize that God really loves us. You know, I made a point whenever we started having kids to tell my kids at least once a day that I love them. And if I can get them and hug them or tackle them and wrestle with them and go, hey, I love you. And man, I, and every time they say, well, I love you too, daddy, and I always say, I love you more. I'm just selfish in that way. But anyway, but I try to tell my kids every day I love them. And I really wish I could take how I feel about them and put it in their minds and their hearts. And sometimes I ache for my kids to know how much I love them. And if I love my kids that much, a love that is imperfect, sometimes manipulative and conditional, just think how much more God loves you. He loves you. And if we confess our sins and put our faith and trust in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can receive that love of God. That steadfast, merciful, gracious, kind love of God. So here's your homework. I just want you to go back and read 1 John 3 and 4 for next week. Just read that. We'll tackle Matthew 22 in my sermon. But I want you to think about how much God loves you. Whenever I first came here as pastor, I met with a man in our church. And he's maybe watching this today. and he, he knows. And he had struggled with growing up in a very legalistic, fundamental 
Uh, nothing wrong with the fundamentals of the faith, but it was a very legalistic um, upbringing. And we met in the library uh, for I don't know how long it was. And so finally I looked across the table and I said his name. And I said, so-and-so, God loves you. He is not mad at you. He loves you. And then he started going off rabbit chat. I said, no, 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 stop, stop. God loves you. And he began to weep. Because I think maybe for the first time he really understood that God loves him perfectly through his son Jesus Christ. Next Sunday will be our first Sunday back uh, worshiping together. And obviously it's going to be a blessing, but it's going to be different, um, obviously, and it's going to be probably really odd. Um, I think this is new. I don't think a church has ever done this before. Any churches have done this before. It's new territory for all of us. And so let me just kind of give you some things to think about. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. I might even preach with a mask. Who knows? I've always wanted to do that. If you want to wear a mask, go for it, man. If, you, if, if wearing gloves makes you feel more secure when you come to worship next Sunday and beyond that, that's fine. Because here's the deal. Wearing a mask, not wearing a mask, wearing gloves, not wearing gloves, does not prove or disprove your spirituality. And, and don't be fearful about people judging you for wearing or not wearing a mask. You do what the Spirit of God is leading you to do. Let me just say it again. You know, if you, if you feel like you need to wear a mask, I encourage you, please feel the freedom in Jesus Christ to wear a mask. Because our spirituality is not proved or disproved by what we put over our mouth and what we put on our hands. Just remember that. And not only that, but let's use next Sunday as a proving ground, a training ground for the fruit of the Spirit. And so here's what I want you to know. First of all, let's be patient with each other. Let's be patient with each other and be patient with the staff. Um, we're not going to be attendance Gestapos. We're going to be gracious. Um, but please make every effort you can to attend the service that you signed up for. Again, we're not going to be mean or ugly or anything like that, but just make sure you do that because it, it helps us out a lot. And so please be patient with the staff, be patient with the custodial staff and those who are volunteering to disinfect and so forth and so on. And just remember, we are trying, we are doing, Brother Bob is, is, and the rest of the pastors, we're doing all we can, we have done all we can to make things safe and sanitized. So just remember that. So be patient. That's fruit number one. Fruit number two, at certain points, your patience has to be long-suffering, right? Because there are going to be some people who are going to be a lot more cautious than you want them to be next Sunday and the following Sundays. So sometimes you just need to be long-suffering. And then there are going to be some other people who are going to be more laid back, more comfortable, more loose about worshiping together. And so you might have to be uh, long-suffering and also be gentle. Be patient, be long-suffering, be gentle. And it may not be a bad idea if you read Romans chapter 14 about the weaker brother and Philippians chapter 2, the very beginning of that, uh, before you come and worship next Sunday. So be patient, be long-suffering, be gentle, and remember to be kind to those around you. Be kind. Okay? Be nice. Be self-controlled. Refrain from hugging, handshakes, high-fives, and holy kisses. Let me repeat that one more time. 
Be self-controlled. Refrain from handshakes. Don't even offer your hand in a shake right now. We're not, we're not there yet. Uh, refrain from hugging. Refrain from high fives. Um, Brother John said he may want a dispensation on that with the graduates. Um, we're we're going to pray through that. Right, John? All right, and be self-controlled about uh, holy kisses. Uh, don't even offer. Just be self-controlled, right? And, and see the good in this, folks. Man, it, it is just—it's a blessing to be. It's going to be a blessing to be back next Sunday. See the good. Be very, very cautious about being negative. And if something is wrong or something is out of place, call Brother Bob. Amen. All right, and so let's be faithful in our worship. Let's be faithful in our worship. Let's be faithful in our attitudes. Let's be faithful in our prayers next Sunday. And then let's rejoice in the love that God has given us through Christ Jesus and display that same love toward each other. Let's remember that. Okay? And before Pastor John comes and the the praise team comes, um, let me just say something about Memorial Day. Um, As we live our lives this weekend and tomorrow, let's remember the price that was paid for our freedom. Our freedom is not free. And let's remember those who paid the ultimate sacrifice for our country's freedom. And let's remember that. I, I don't want to wrap the cross in the flag. I'm not about that. Staff knows that. Um, but, but, but folks, listen, we live in a free country. Uh, we're not as free as we should be, um, but we're, we're free. We're free to worship without fear. And let's just take a moment to thank those who have... Um, who are in the military, been in the military, and let's thank God for the freedom that we have, um, especially through Jesus Christ. So just remember that. And then I just want to send us out in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. And this is my pastorly prayer for our church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, in your inner being, so that you may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints that the, what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now unto Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your affectionate loyalty your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your mercy and forgiveness. And we thank You that that was revealed to us on the cross and in the resurrection through Jesus Christ, Your Son, our Lord. Now, Father, I pray that we'll give our thoughts this week to Your definition of love. And Lord, as we give our thoughts to Your definition of love, I pray that we will display and strive to display that type of love toward each other. Lord, we thank You for all that You have done for us and all that is ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Edwards Road Baptist Church. We hope you are meaningfully involved in a local church, but if you aren't, we would love to have you join us on Sunday mornings as we worship God and hear from His Word together. You can find more information about our church by visiting our website at edwardsroad.org.